Rose Diaz, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Um, I'm doing good, but I feel like I'm probably doing a little bit better because you're in the Chicagoland area. And what is the temperature right now? Actually, today is better. It's been like negative five and icy. Um, today, it's right now 35. Oh, wow. So much better. Every, everyone is saying it's a heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> Not to rub it in. Uh, let's see. My computer says it's 64 right now, but oh. it's supposed to get up to 74. But it's been cooling off in the evenings down in the 50s, which is nice. You know, they have those windows open and the fan going and all that kind of stuff. So listen, welcome to the Cobcast. And, and I'll tell you, um, as I was putting together the list of the people that I wanted to speak to, um, you know, the whole basis of these are normal people with really interesting stories. Um, I had to have you on as the first person because not only is your, your story uh, really interesting, your background and kind of what you do now, um, you know, I want to glean takeaways out of here and you're probably one of the most empathetic people I know uh, in the in the context of how the world is so much division even on a personal level within families you know because of politics I find you as uh, one of these people who could bridge the gap and you're a really good listener and I feel like well I know there's some going to be some really good takeaways um, uh, out of out of the podcast so what a better way to launch this thing with uh, with Rose Diaz. So uh, one of the things that uh, we're going to be doing is to kind of level set is how do we know each other, Rose? And I'm going to let you tell the story. Oh, okay. First of all, thank you for all those nice things you've said about me. Um, so we met through our youngest daughters, like best friends years ago. They were pretty young. I want to say six, seven, eight, nine. Um, you know, uh, your ex-wife, lived uh, about a block from me. So uh, Maddie and Piper were really close friends. So that's how you and I met. So that, that's, that's really cool. One of the things that I um, learned about you that I didn't, I haven't ever really gone super, super deep is kind of uh, your immigrant background. Uh, we've always kind of had uh, surfacey uh, conversations and I find this really interesting. So um, you are of Cuban descent. Mm -hmm. And uh, you actually migrated as a child from Cuba to the United States. And so I'd love for you to kind of tell the story uh, about that migration, maybe. And I know you were young at the time, but uh, what was going on in Cuba, the kind of the time frame and some observations. Um, I don't know if there's direct comparisons today, what's going on in the U.S., you know, this whole discussion around equity and what that really means. Um, but if you could maybe share your background um, coming from Cuba. Sure. So um, I think it was 58 or 59, Batista was still in office and Castro came in um, fighting and, and pushing him out. So even my mother, I found this picture of her and she would like, she looked like she was in a military, even though she was like high school or, you know, pretty young. And she said, I... I actually, we were all open to what Castro was saying. She said, like, I spent two weeks kind of in the mountains following him. And then I realized, uh, no, and left. So she was open to try and hear about other different politics. Um, so uh, my father was a, a nurse in the top hospital in Havana, Cuba. And he would also work with 
um, kind of elderly elite, you know, families and get paid on the side. So he saved all this money. He created this, uh, he uh, built this apartment complex. It was top of the line, everything. And then Castro came in and my mom used to talk about the war too, that she couldn't go on dates. She couldn't really leave the house much because of all the fighting and bombing and, and things like that. So, you know, it was a different, different time for her. Um, my father was 15 years older than her and she was in college on her second year. Um, when they met, they got married four months later and then, you know, everything started to change and he knew what was happening with Castro. And my father loved to travel. So he had come to New York and gotten a, a nursing license there, you know, learning some of the English. Um, he sort of anticipated what was happening. And so when Castro came in, he declared communism. So my father lost his apartment complex. Everybody no longer owned anything. And what they said was, okay, whoever's in their apartment, uh, that's where you live now. And that's like sort of you own it, but you don't. You don't really own anything. Mm. But, but now, from now on, that's where you live. And so, of course, you know, my, my father was upset. Um, and so he was looking for a way to leave. Um, so they started to plan that. And so I was born and we left when um, I was two. Um, my so, father, go ahead. Yeah, so, and maybe you'll get into this. I'm curious, like planning to leave, I mean, typically in a communist society, or if you look like, see, look at China or Russia, more so China, because they're heavy in the tech. I mean, they control everything. They're watching everything. They incentivize people to kind of snitch on each other. Was it that kind of, obviously the technology wasn't the same back then, but was it similar? It was exactly the same. Uh, my father, my, my mom got pregnant right away with my sister. And right after he had my sister, she got pregnant with me <laughs> a couple months later. And my father said, should we get an abortion? And my mom said, no, but abortions were pretty uh, common. And, you know, they were giving Americans abortions all the time because it was illegal back then. So, you know, him being a nurse, he said, well, we, you know, we need to get out of here. Um, and they had already declared, you had to declare to the government if you were leaving. And what they do is they come over and they list, they take a list and they write down everything in your own, even pots and pans because you really don't own them and they're not, you're not allowed to take that with you. You can take one suitcase, one piece of jewelry, um, very minimum money, you lose everything. And what happened is he already told his work, he told everybody. So he lost his, they take your nursing license away, right away. So he had to go and plead with the supervisor. I, I can't, I, you know, my, she has to have the baby first. We can't leave right away. So he had to go from the top lead hospital in Havana to uh, two hours away, a very uh let's just say uh, not a great neighborhood <laughs> um, okay. hospital and kind of go uh he so he gave him his license back but he said you can't tell anyone and my mom would say like neighbors were constant oh where's your husband oh no he's just uh uh went to visit a friend she would have to lie constantly they were constantly trying to check up on them because again you're you're even though at the time Castro was allowing people to leave yeah you're you're still looked upon badly you know, so that um, you're a traitor. And in fact, anytime my parents oh, wow. went back, they'd go separately. They had to do very specific things because they are looked at as a traitor because that's the mentality of, of the, the country at that point. I was gonna say that it's interesting um, that a country can move from, you know, people being individuals, owning things individually 
and through whatever steps, authoritarianism or dictatorship, whatever, that a segment of society will just go along with it. And I, I find that interesting um, that it, the right incentives, if you will, uh, whether it's mm -hmm. carrot or stick, that as human beings, that what, where is that line? What, 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 is, what is the line for each of us that we would uh, essentially do something, uh, you know, and we feel our own interest is so much stronger to, you know, betray somebody else or just that whole idea of you're betraying your country uh, so it's interesting. I, some of the things going on today in the States, and this isn't the political podcast, but you kind of see this division that even two years ago, it's like, I'm pinching myself. Are we in the same country? And there's always been some level of division, probably the last, you know, forever, but it's really been heightened the last several years because of what's been going on with the pandemic and the natural fear and anxiety. Um, and, and, and we're, you would never think some of the stuff that's being done could have been done in the United States. But I just find that is kind of interesting. Well, when you, when you start to talk about class, you can see how it can happen. My father who worked hard to get to build things, lost it. But then think of someone who's in poverty. Oh, great. I have my own apartment. I never have to pay a thing again. So that's where the class divides. And you can see where some people were supporting him. And even my mom was open to, well, wait, you know, if the government pays for everything, yeah. guess what we get? And even over the years, I looked at it and um, Castro's brother, uh, I mean, Fidel Castro's brother, who actually took over, his wife was kind of a feminist and very interesting. You yeah. could get a great education in Cuba, right? Because it doesn't yeah. cost anything. But then, you know, my, my mom's cousin was a doctor, made the same as a postal worker. So, you know, there's, there's give and take, you know, the healthcare system was supposed to be wonderful as well. So, you know, people could buy into it because there was some, it was not, not all negative, but at the same time, you cannot say anything against the government. Um, I've watched some documentaries where they, you know, you couldn't listen to certain music artists were putting, being put in jail. So it's still authoritative as much as their communism were sure. all the same. It's, sure. it's, it's, it's a load of crap because Castro sat rich, you know, the government, Right. was treated differently. And I say this too, because my mom's uh, sister was married to someone who used to sit in, in the military high up that would have dinner with them. Um, and so years later, when my mom would go visit, she, even though they had been divorced for years, um, my mom couldn't, like, she couldn't go to her house. She kind of had to do it in secrecy to spend time with her own sister because of the, you know, relationship. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how is that any kind of freedom? Right. You know what I mean? So, right. and I do see kind of similarities in the big divide now. And the truth is people don't realize this because I've had friends that go through divorce and then the IRS just freezes their accounts, freezes their house, and you don't really own anything here either. Right, right, right. right. That's, that's Stop paying right. your real estate taxes and see what happens. <laughs> but, it's, but it's true. Like people yeah. think, well, I own this. I'm like, mm, it, a lot of, well, how do you think that happened with, with communism? Like, and yeah. I'm not trying to scare people, but it's just the reality right. of, of what can happen. And, um, and then, like I said, that's when my father was like, we're out of here. So we went to Spain and then uh, he had to save money and get a job. And then we got sponsored through a cousin um, who uh, managed a sugarcane factory who was well off. Uh, he sponsored us into the States and his son was my you know, father's cousin. And we ended up in um, Harvey, Illinois. So that's how we ended up in, 
in Illinois. So I was two when we left. And, and that was something that um, I didn't realize that we had in common when we first met, that we're both from the southwest side of the Chicagoland area. That's a little bit further south. I was uh, in Palos, but I'm very familiar with, with Harvey. And um, really the southwest side at that point in general was very blue collar, you know, lower middle class-ish. Yep. you know um, yeah, we're all class. That's what I, yeah I would say. exactly and um certainly the area i was in palos was probably more irish and as i grew up you know more greek people came in or whatever but but i didn't i didn't realize till later like wow maybe this is some of the reasons why our, when we get into work ethic and that kind of thing i really believe um not that people can't have great work work ethic coming from other areas but you tend to work it's a little bit, you have to prove yourself a little bit harder because of classism, basically. Sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but I'm always grateful to be in this country. Yeah. Um, because even, even when my parents, when we were young, they would call and try to talk to family. Um, they couldn't say anything, anything that even seemed political, they would get disconnected because people listen in. On their phone calls. Yeah. I mean, I remember that growing up. It was pretty common for my mom to get dropped um, because of that. She couldn't say anything. So, See, the, I mean, what, that's what people don't understand about authoritative. Well, right. I mean, if you look at, I mean, we're so modern. We Everything is very easy for us. Um, and so when you look at certain social media channels or, or, or platforms where they're just outright censoring people. And in our view, it's like, well, it's a private business. They could do that. That's true, but it's also so massive and big tech controls so much. And I'm sure everybody listening to this has heard this. So I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the reality, my, the only reason of pointing that out is when you talk about your phone, people listening in, whatever, and somebody's deciding in that case, it's the government. Um, you know, in this case, you have private business, which some I've heard arguments that there's collusion with the government, you know, in certain instances. So that's an interesting parallel. But I wanted to, so when you guys went to Spain, uh, you're speaking the same language. Um, and so language is, is really important because it, it helps people, uh, you know, kind of uh, integrate, assimilate, if you will, that kind of thing. But when you come from then Spain, to the United States. And at that point in time, uh, you know, the demographics in this country are quite different than they are today. So it's very common to hear people speak in Spanish today. Um, not so much back then. How did you, how did you guys make that transition? Did your folks even know English? Yeah, so my, my father knew a little bit of English. He would say, yeah, I would say he had broken English as, you know, we used to say, um, and so we did move into Harvey next to our, our you know, our cousins. Um, and we did that just for a little while. Then my father decided he wanted to assimilate. He said, no, we're going to, we're not going to be a crutch. And um, so we moved to uh, Romeoville Illinois, and into this young neighborhood. And I remember neighbors would come over and my mom, my parents would say, I, I lost a lot of my speaking of the Spanish because we'd have to speak in English to them as we were learning and they would speak in uh, Spanish back, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, struggle with it. So here's my mom, she was two years of college. My father got a job at a hospital, a local hospital. And we had like neighbors coming over, very nice to, to uh, my parents for sure. 
uh, I think we were a little strange. <laughs> my, my father was used to like, you know, lines for, for food. You didn't get meat in Cuba. Like I, I watched a documentary to see if things had changed and it actually got worse after Russia pulled out of the partnership in the 90s. So what happened was, you know, people would wait and a month and a half would go by and they're like, hey, the onions are in and there would be lines for onions. That's you know, crazy. It's so hard to get like anything from, you know, because, you know, um, nobody's sending it to them, right? And my mom would send things and of course government take a big take on it. But anyway, so my father, I remember I grew up eating a lot of meat <laughs> because he's like, we could have meat for every meal. <laughs> so like literally when I had my kids, when they were young, they, they finally said, mom, can we have like a meatless Monday or something? I'm like, what? She's like, why do we have meat so much? I'm like, doesn't everyone, you know, that's how, you know, you grow up in your own you know, culture and you just don't question it. So the other thing my parents did, my dad thought it was just great. We didn't even have that big of a yard. He grew corn in the back. So I'm sure we were like the weird immigrants doing some bizarre things because they're like, wow, you know, the freedom he felt was like, look, we could do this. So, so it was a really strange time. But at the same time, my, um, our neighbors, I remember being very thoughtful and sweet. And, um, and then I also remember my mom had already had two years of college, straight A student. And she was crying because she had to like start over because right away she took a job uh, when we got older to try to work at a factory. And she did that for a couple months and she was crying. And my dad goes, so go back to school. So my mom did. So she ended up as a bilingual teacher and three masters later. But I remember, you know, that was always important to her. Mm -hmm. So she had to, she, she took classes for six months learning, you know, ESL and then wanted to take a GED. And the teacher kept saying, you're not ready. You're not ready. Well, my mom knew she was an A student. So of course she passed right away. Um, so th I think that's what saved her because it was very depressing coming from an island that was yeah. always sunny to cold, horrible winters with young kids and my father working two jobs. Yeah. You know, so she was very isolated and it was still not her culture. And, and um, you know, so, and her family, everybody was gone and you, you, you know, it's communism. They can't come out and visit. So very different. That, that that would be incredibly uh, difficult. It, one of the things that you said um, that struck me that I still appreciate, uh, you know, our country to this day, as flawed as every country is, and right now I think we're going through a weird time. Uh, I remember the first time that I went abroad, uh, I mean, like, to Asia, to India, okay? Like, I've been in poor neighborhoods around Chicago, whatever, but in India, where there was, at that point, uh, billion, I don't know what they're up to now. And, and, and the infrastructure wasn't there. So, you know, it's something that should take like an hour to get somewhere it would take five hours, you know, in a, in a vehicle. But I remember saying just how poor, like what poor really, really looks like, like, where's your next meal coming from? Uh, it's not to say in the United States, we don't have people who are in those situations, but we have an infrastructure. You can find whether it's a church or whatever, right? Um, like, my goodness, that was such a huge, and I, over the years, spent months, you know, in India, and I got to see it kind of become more developed. But um, I come back to the United States, and I'd be like, thank you, Lord. Thank you that we don't, I don't have to worry, even if I was poor here. I could get food. I could get food stamps. I could get, I don't have to plant my own food. I don't have to do that kind of thing. And as you were talking about that, uh, and then 
kind of in the reverse coming from an environment, you know, where it was such control, now you have freedom. And yet you, because of that freedom, you're like, I'm gonna be self-sustained too, and taking those steps to do that as you assimilate into society um, and kind of learn how things go. Um, so that's quite interesting. Now, how did you kind of uh, start to get in? You know, I started working at a very young age um, and I, I know you did too. When did you start kind of getting some money in your pocket and start working over here? So I think I was either 13 or 14. We, we moved from uh, Romeoville to Country Club Hills to a bigger house. Um, and I have three siblings, so, you know, it was six of us. Um, and I remember that, um, so it was a newer neighborhood and I, you know, here I am going to high school or high schooler. So there was a lot of young kids. So I started babysitting. I, I babysit for eight kids on that block. And I would just like, hey, it's free money. So like, I went crazy. Um, so that was my first job. And then when I was 15, um, my father said, hey, let's, let's just tell them you're 16 and, and work somewhere. And so I worked at a Kentucky Fried Chicken in uh, Chicago Heights, which was not a great neighborhood. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And I was really super shy and I worked really hard. And, and I remember scared to death. I'd get a stomachache every time I got there because I had a really abusive um, uh, manager who would just scream at us. Even it was a three o'clock in the afternoon. We couldn't clean anymore. We talked for two seconds and he'd be screaming at us. Um, he was just horrible. I remember he dropped a piece of chicken once and I was like, oh, should we throw it? He goes, nope, we're putting it right back. I mean, oh my gosh. Oh yeah, back in the day. And I was I was afraid to say anything because he was like so screamer. This, this reminds me real quick. Um, so I was, I started working probably like uh, 12-ish cleaning up uh, construction sites, new homes that the guys would pay me to do that. But I think I was maybe 14 and I was working illegally and it was at a, big banquet hall in Palis, I won't say the name, but what you just said at the end of the banquet, okay, we'd go around in the dinner rolls, okay? If they did not finish eating the dinner rolls, the manager would have us pick up the dinner rolls and put them back in the big barrel. And at the time I didn't connect that that's like, I mean, at some level it was like, that's disgusting. But now looking at it is like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, things have changed. Things yeah. have changed a lot. We've talked about this because it's like, yeah, uh, yeah. Things they used to do in school, teachers. You know, you just oh. didn't talk about that stuff. You just right. let it happen because it, you know. No, that sounds weird, but you know what I mean. Like yep. we knew the teachers would flirt with us and you know come and put their arm around us and you'd feel uncomfortable and you just wouldn't say anything. You don't yeah, tell on them. Or seeing at kegger parties, you know, when I was a teenager, seeing at kegger parties were back then, uh, you know, of course, nobody does this now, but if yeah. you had a fake ID, uh, I remember in particular, uh, this one bar, uh, a friend of mine, his, his mom worked at, and they'd have live music there. And so I'm like, oh, we're going to go see live music. It happened to be a country, a pretty popular country bar. That's a whole other story. But, uh, but I remember seeing a teacher there, I won't say which teacher because somebody listening might be able to connect to that. The guy was married, okay? He was a teacher in a class I had and his wife was at, at the same high school, was a teacher in another class. And he was there with other women, you know, meeting other women. And I just thought, holy crap. And the guy, he knew who I was. He knew who I was and didn't say a word, didn't say. So yeah, I mean, the norms obviously have thank God, have really changed, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, we I, just, I'm a little older than you, but um, back then, Wisconsin and Indiana were still 18. And, and Illinois had just changed over from, from 18 to 21. So I was 17. My sister, Lisi was 11 months older than me, and we looked alike. So I would use her ID, and we crossed the line, because Indiana is very close to um, the south suburbs, and we'd go to this bar at Point East, and we could get in with our, you know, 18-year-old uh, ID or whatever. My, my friends were 18. Um, and, and drink, but we ma mainly went to see bands was the same thing. Yeah. So uh, it was kind of crazy time. And then things changed again, but yeah. Yeah. So, so you, that was, so that was your first job. How did you kind of progress? And uh, obviously we're going to get into some of the things you've been focusing on over the last decade or so and, and, and now, but how did you tell me about your journey uh, as you've, kind of uh, grew up on the Southwest side. You had the first couple jobs. How did you start to migrate into, I'll say the career that you're um, into today and the things uh, that you do have done as far as volunteerism and things of that nature? So um, because my dad traveled, we also did a lot of vacations. And so we traveled a lot. Um, we, you know, I was 14 when he took us to Europe for a month and did, you know, visit all different countries. So I wasn't afraid of any kind of change or uh, of traveling. So at first um, I, I got a job. I, I went to two years of community college. I was working at a restaurant, assistant manager, why I was doing that. Um, and then um, I think I met somebody and he lived in Boston. He was trying to move by me. And my girlfriend one day said, I'm going to go move back to Boston. Why don't you come with me? So I wasn't afraid of migrate. And I think that has to do with our upbringing. Um, and I love to travel. So like I went over there and I traveled to like Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod and Vermont and New Hampshire and just New York a couple of times. I only lived there for a year, but um, so I had two years of college. I, I started recruiting nurses. I worked for the first uh, nurse travel company that was ever created. It was called Traveling Nurse Corps. Um, loved that job. And then um, I didn't like the East Coast. It was very segregated. Um, I felt like there was a lot of racism where I didn't see mm. that in the Midwest, um, especially in Chicago. Uh, and I lived in Chicago uh, for a couple of years before I moved out there. Um, so uh, there's a lot of things about the East Coast that are very reserved. People just seem so crabby. <laughs> I've never had more people screaming at me. I came back and my friends were like, you're so defensive. I'm like, you don't know what it was like to live out there. What, was what, like, what decade was that? Do you remember? Um, Yes, so 81, I graduated. Uh, the late 80s. The late, late 80s. 80s. So my, my experience in the East Coast, um, you know, as you know, I was a banker for uh, global finance for a bunch of years. And there was a period I was splitting my time between Chicago and New York, and in particular, Manhattan. So when you, even I worked downtown Chicago, Okay, either when I had my own business in, in my, my teens um, or late teens. And I noticed, and I don't know if you were in a, more of an urban setting or not. I mean, in general, people like there's this invisible boundary. As soon as you cross it, it's like nobody talks to each other. Everybody's super intense. Everybody's, you know, and I noticed that. But then in New York, in that area, um, there's even a higher level of, I don't know what the heck it is. So like at the time I had, uh, the company was paying for an apartment. I was literally by the park 
super nice area. And I noticed right away in the Midwest on the weekends, you know, you get up, you get jeans, ball cap, and kind of everybody was like dressed to the hilt all the time. And I don't know if it was just because it was Manhattan or what the deal was, but everybody was on edge trying to present a certain look, if you will, and kind of aura. And at first you're like, oh my God, I got to, you know, kind of fit in, you know, where people hung out, the, you know, the cool stuff and all that kind of thing. And, you know, it was a good experience, but not something that I would want to live in long-term when I eventually was just back in Chicago. I'm like, oh my God, people are so much more relaxed <laughs> in the Midwest. So I, I kind of see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely, you know, the, the people weren't friendly and, and I, I mean, they were so reserved. I remember getting on an elevator with a woman and I went, hi. And she went, I'm like, don't <laughs> mind. But that was constant. Uh, people just, you know, it was crazy. And I remember being out with my boyfriend at the time and meeting this uh, girlfriend of a new friend and we were talking and we were just gabbing and finally she goes, oh my gosh. She goes, you're so nice. I go, oh, thanks. She goes, you're not from here, are you? And I said, <laughs> no, I'm not. She goes, are you from the Midwest? I go, yeah, I'm from Chicago. And she goes, figures, I'm from Wisconsin. She knew it immediately because I was so open. So part of it is they just, you know, it's, and this is Boston and this isn't even New York. So it's just a mentality too, though, on the East coast is that the East coast is the end all and Chicago, right. Chicago, they, they acted like I grew up on a farm. I just couldn't understand it. I go, it's a major city. I had to keep explaining it to them. So it was just really funny to be out there. And I just didn't like it. I, I wanted to, you know, it, it's funny how you grow up a certain way and you're like, mm, yeah, like yeah. So. Um, so then I came back. I lived in the city again for several years. I took a job. Uh, uh, what did I do next? Oh, ARM and Hellstar. Um, um, and then I, I took an, um, no, no, I, I'm sorry. I worked for Quantum Chemicals. I worked for so many different companies and did different things, whether it was HR or sales. Yeah. And then before I knew it, um, I worked, I started running a government sales department for an electrical distributor <laughs> just strange in the things that I would do um because I'd get promoted every time I went to a company yeah and then I went back to school to finish my college degree um when I got married and was staying home with kids and started doing all this volunteer work because I was very bored <laughs> after I got my degree yeah how, how did you get then like into the nonprofit world I mean right now I know you work for a nonprofit in focus on grants um, and you've, you've actually, and I'd love for you to talk about your time um, working, and I know you've been on a school board, which is cool. Uh, love to hear that experience, but your time working in that youth, I want to say youth, uh, was it not a jail, uh, or was it a, a considered Well, a it's an uh, Illinois Youth Correctional Facility, so okay. it, was felon, it was felons, um, I think it was medium security, uh, it was boys, 14 to 20. Um, that was my last real volunteer work, <clears throat> although I'm, I'm still always doing some, eh, that's not true. I'm on a committee, a couple of committees now, but um, I started very, actually, when I remember I worked as a electrical distributor, um, a friend of mine said, hey, you want to help out? We babysit for like uh, uh, women that have been abused, like domestic violence. Yeah. But I do remember thinking, I didn't know how to respond to the kids when they talk about how daddy would kick mommy in the stomach and things like that when she was pregnant. And I did, I felt like I was like, but it was at least a, a glimpse into, you know, doing something that was meaningful. So then um, 
ended up having three stepkids and then I had my, two of my own. And I look at it now, I'm like, wasn't that enough? <laughs> but once I quit work after Maya was almost a year old, my, my oldest born, I, th- I, I think I just have always had a lot of energy and I wanted to, to do other things. So that's when I started volunteering. I thought if I'm going to stay home with my kids and my uh, stepkids were getting older, um, you know, they were adults. And I thought, and I think I saw something, I went to a school board meeting and I didn't like the way they were doing something. So uh, I did a little speech and people were like moved by it. And I said, I think I'm gonna run for the school board. And my kids were pretty young. And so I, st- and, and one of the things I always realized that if, if I run for something or you know, I get on something, I'll always do my homework and I become more educated about the system and the process. So I ended up eight years on a school board because you do four year stints. And then uh, I was the president for, for two terms so four years. I learned a lot. And I also had gone back, I finished my degree and I had gone back and did uh, three years of uh, life coaching classes. So, so and, and this is something I think uh, there's a takeaway here. And as we start to get into the topic of mental health, which I, you know, which is very relevant to some of the things you're doing now. Um, like, I appreciate the fact, and I'm this way too, but it, it, probably live more, a little more later in life for me. It's like uh, getting involved, putting yourself out there, taking those risks to make a difference, whether it's a school board or whatever it is. I mean, was there something specific other than, hey, you know, I got my kids at home. I want to get involved. Was there anything specific that said, you know what, I want to get involved in the school board because of XYZ? Was there something specific do you recall? Or was it like, you know, I want to know more and see how I could contribute. Well, I, I like to write and I wrote this letter to try to get people, it, it, they were having a boundary shift and I really was trying to understand what was going on. And for me, um, I sort of was just, odd. I wrote this letter and I kind of said, listen, instead of just complaining about things, because, you know, people can do that, Right. you know, you have options. And one of it, I, and I even said, then get involved. And I thought, hmm, I got to take my own advice. So it sort of motivated me. And then I was finishing up my coaching classes. And I also have a psychology background. I was going to be a therapist, but I got really sick with my second pregnancy, gave up grad school. And then I, I t- started taking coaching. And one of the things I looked at was violence and um, how you elevate to violence is, you know, a lot of times when your needs aren't met. And so when I started to really research it, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to get um, teach life coaching relationships and purpose in the classrooms? Mm. So it was kind of twofold, but then it was a rude awakening. <laughs> that, yeah, there's union. You can't just bring it the in. system. Yeah. You, know, you have to offer teachers first, you know, uh, classes outside the class. Like there was such a system that you couldn't shake. And I mean, we, we would get sent to um, um, school board conferences in the city every year I'd go to. And I remember seeing a workshop and they were talking about doing improv and they, you know, to help the kids relax, how to do yoga in the classroom. I came back and they talked to a principal about it. She's like, Rose, I'd love to do it. She can't, you can't do it. You have to offer it to teachers and they have to agree, you know, and I knew it. And I used to negotiate also for the union contract. There's no way we're going to bring programs. Isn't that insane? I mean, you could look at the news in, you know, again, this is not a political uh, podcast, but in Virginia, the, you know, the new governor there um, basically won based on parents were very upset with what 
was going on in their schools there, and it became a national issue. And uh, this uh, governor happened to support it, um, what these parents were doing. And they were being shamed because the system, it's just not right, okay? You could agree to disagree on policy, that kind of thing. But they were going out of the way to shame these parents and uh, demonize them. And listen, I, I get pissed off on certain things and I could probably come across as a crazy parent. So I'll have some empathy on the other side for the, for the board too, right? Um, but, you know, the system, and I remember uh, in, I was in banking at this point um, in, in this, this other company ended up buying us, but um, we would do a lot of volunteerism, uh, youth services in the city of Chicago. And at that point, I was actually involved on more of the technology side of the business. Um, and in, in tech at that point, that was probably the 90s. Um, it was pretty much white guys. And there were some women, actually, there were some women in, in good positions, which, you know, uh, but no minorities. And, and we used to source a lot of uh, the programmers from NIU in Illinois, that was a good uh, tech school. But the other thing kind of we were thinking, well, you know, you've got these neighborhoods in Chicago that are completely freaking neglected. And the, the idea and the discussion like, you know, we should do an intern program. Let's specifically target those neighborhoods. Let's do, get them in, we'll start to train them. And then there was a bigger, bolder idea like, well, why don't we set up a shop there and teach these kids uh, how to program? But you gotta get them young, you know, in high school, competing with gangs and all that kind of stuff. Even back then, now it's like middle school or younger, you know, the gangs are going after. And unfortunately, most of what we wanted to do couldn't happen because of just the bureaucracy of the system. Well, you can't mentor, you're not a teacher. You can't do that, you know, this goes, goes way back. Um, so that was probably my first uh, kind of insight into the, it doesn't matter what your intentions are, you know, and it, it's a little bit discouraging in that, is it about the kids or is it about the system? And not just to pick on education, you could look at multiple systems in general. Um, where you're like, even in the big corporate environment, is this about doing what's right? Or is this about the shareholder value, quote unquote, return, you know, ROI or whatever. So uh, very interesting. Now, well, right. Green yep. has a lot to do with that, right? Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't, it was the, um, there's a oh, staff of 12 on the, on the union, but it was like, I think six or seven that really were supposed to represent the teachers. And the truth is they weren't representing the teachers. They had an agenda and it was always yeah. about we make more money and forget everything else. Because the teachers, when you talk to them, as I was on committees with them, they never understood anything that was going in the contracts. They right. didn't. They just go, what? I mean, it, it, and again, I see this all across the board. Like if you don't get educated about the process, whether you're a parent or a teacher or, you know, and people mostly don't, you know, we're, we're in this society now that you're overwhelmed with information. But it really, if you, you really should get educated about what's happening. Yeah. And if everybody got educated, we make better decisions. But that's that's not how that's not how it is. But honestly, that group did not represent, you know, just from circumstances and and, and some things that happened that uh, I negotiated that they didn't even agree with the union because they didn't realize what they were doing. And so I don't want to badmouth teachers. I think when it came down oh, to course. it, right. they, they actually there were a lot of great teachers and, and cared more about the group as a whole. But this union that was supposed to be representing the leaders, 
really totally and, and i have you know uh angie uh, you know and by the way this was somebody that i, I had was was dating uh for quite some time um she was a special ed teacher and she worked um on in the northwest suburbs and um was paid very well and, and the special ed is very very bureaucratic in that you have to document freaking you're spending you know, based on some of the things she shared with me, spending so much time documenting and, you know, the teaching part of it is, it's almost like a defensive role for this teacher, but her heart, her heart was um, so focused on, you know, helping these kids and the struggles and kind of the limitations of the system that they put on you because of risk and all that and all that kind of stuff. But most, in fact, I can't think of a teacher that I haven't met that their heart's in the right spot. And um, there's just kind of these constraints, whether it's the union or, you know, whatever it might be. So it's, it's become an incredibly difficult job. Um, but like, I think every field, um, you know, there's some people with agendas or, you know, whatever it might be. So the, the so that got you started kind of in the whole life coaching. In, is that how you got involved then in the youth prison, that whole idea of, once I got off the school board and, yeah. uh, which is, <laughs> you know, uh, is people would say a thankless job because they don't understand parents would come back and how much are you getting paid? And right. Stuff. Like you, it was a volunteer position and you devote like, I mean, literally once a week, eight years, especially being the president, I was much more involved and I had to be in committees and things. And so when people don't know, they make assumptions. And, and so there was a lot of, <laughs> Well, suddenly um, I read an article in the, uh, you know, Tribune or whatever, and um, about the, about the group, and um, I had worked with teen groups um, before, like at the YWCA, um, and I saw that um, something about it just hit my heart, um, and so I called them up, and the literacy manager who had all the volunteers that that reported to her, like fifty, I think. Um, I said, listen, I, I don't want to necessarily do literacy, but I'm a life coach. It looks like there's, you know, eight boys 18 to 20. What do they do after their high school equivalency there? And, you know, could I put a work on goals with them? And she said, oh my gosh, we just started this new life coaching program. You'd be great for that. Come on in. And so then I did that for a year. I'd come in once a week or uh, every other, you know, depending on my schedule and work with um, the boys uh, that were the older boys there. Do, did you see... Um, a common thread on, you know, wh why, I mean, we all make choices, right? And, and I, um, and this is, again, one of the things that about you, the, the level of empathy that you have, even with some of the kids that you may have been dealing with that have done some really, you know, terrible things, uh, they're still human. And um, you, we could make one bad choice based on something that could change the trajectory of our life for sure. Uh, not necessarily violence per se, but when you were working with those kids, did you see anything kind of like a common thread that you could say, sure. I get how this could happen? Yeah. And, you know, we were trained for two days. Uh, I had to go through <laughs> some really uh, honest things and they said don't ask what they do because when you find out they've raped or killed someone you you know you're not going to look at them the same so we needed to be objective so mm -hmm. we really never talked about that but 
some of the things we did was uh, like, uh, I think it was called Casey Life Skills and we'd, we'd do um, questions um, with them. And like, I know one uh, boy, a man that had been there in two years, um, he really wanted to go back and he would say, I really just wanna be with my baby mama and my kid and I don't wanna get back into drugs or gangs. So there was a real prevalence of gangs and a lot of pressure uh, to be in gangs. And it really had to do with their neighborhood and how their upbringing was. So like, I do remember specifically working with this kid and he would, I would ask this survey, like, uh, have you ever been in a relationship that includes slapping, kicking, hitting, screaming, profanity or whatever? And he, you know, he wrote no. And the next question is, do you know what an abusive relationship is? And he said, no. And so you can see it's a generational thing. And I would work on FAFSA too for some of the kids. And uh, we couldn't get the parents to help or call. So you, you knew a lot of them didn't have fathers. You would see the same thing. A lot of violence in their upbringing, absenteeism. Um, parents didn't want anything to do with them. You couldn't get them a call. So you, you could see you know, how hollow their lives mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. And I do remember too, like, um, because there was so much inconsistency. Sometimes we pulled... 80% um, came from Cook County. And then sometimes they'd end up somewhere else or, you know, they, nothing was consistent ever. And uh, Chicago Tribune uh, gave to this program and they wanted to do an interview with me and Nick had just left. And I, I used to question like, what am I doing here? It seems like I'm just doing these small little, you know, things and I don't really think I'm effective. And I love the literacy manager. She was so wonderful. I love watching her with these boys. She was so respectful. She did something we do calling coaching, uh, like appreciative inquiry and, and asking uh, permission. And she just did it automatically. Hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? And, and when you do that, you soften it. So mm -hmm. I learned a lot of passion from her as well. And, and I could see a lot of these boys were so intelligent and they'd say, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to my family or my neighborhood. Like, I don't know how to do this. And I would sit and talk with them and it just broke my heart. Um, and so anyway, Nick got out and, and they interviewed him. And one of the things he said was, you know, Rose was so patient and so kind and respectful to me. I've never, I haven't seen that a lot in my life. And that's what affected me the most. And so that's what I realized. We were modeling behavior for them that they weren't used to. And so because we were so respectful and, you know, they would say when the guards come up and they do certain things, you stay out of it. You don't want an incident. Right. Um, you don't know why and how they're, they're acting the way they're doing and for me, they could be very violent. And, and but this is also supposed to save your life because you don't know if they're, you know, these are violent criminals. But I would look at them and they were like boys. They're, you know, I, I could see the way they talked. But at the same time, like, I remember she, the literacy manager would say to me, you're different than everybody else. I know I can just take you into one of the dorm rooms. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> yeah, well, like the dorm area or whatever, where there'd be 14 boys. Yeah. And one guard and he's in the other room. I'm like, okay. And so like, she would, she's like, you can handle it. You can, I can tell you can handle it. So she would, she would put me in these situations that I would just laugh because she's like, you know, no one uh, wants to work with this kid, but I know you can handle it. So for the first two months I was scared to, to death and <laughs> I had to talk myself down <laughs> every time I was walking. You can't carry cell phones. You can't carry anything because it could be weapons. You can't have a necklace on because they could choke you with, like sure. this is our training. So at first it was scary. And then you just evolve and go, oh, this is part of it. So it, it was, it was hard to watch when a, you know, like three uh, uh, guards came up 
and had to like grab somebody that you knew. And I just had to, and he looked shameful, you know, one of the kids and, and I just have to walk away. So it was a very different environment. I sure. learned a lot, but I love this literacy manager. So anyway, so one day she's like, we're going to do games in the library. We're going to take four kids at a time. And then you work with these and then they're going to come in and they're going to take cupcakes and decorate them. And I'm like, these are 18, 19, 20 year olds. And I was like, what? Decorate cupcakes. Well, let me tell you, they all wanted to do it. When you would have no freedom and you're in there and locked up for years, some of them are going into a jail after they turn 21. Yeah. This was exciting. Plus what I learned. So one day I said, can I, can I somehow sneak in? Cause you have to go through the guard gate and everything. Can I sneak in cookies? We'd like to make them home-baked cookies. My, my youngest Piper and I decided to do snickerdoodles and, uh, Ooh, those and are I, good. right. But I didn't even know what they were since I'm Cuban background until I was in my forties. I, I looked up this recipe and it's a very American thing. So I remember Maya coming through the kitchen after we made like 70 of them because they take a while to make, you know, it's the cinnamon and all that on top. And I said, well, do you think the boys will like this? She's like, are they 90 year old white women? They're not even going to know what these are. I'm like, what? And it was like, what are you talking about? And I was so worried. So I had to sneak them in. She, the literacy manager who worked there had to come into the front, grab the cookie because literally depending on which guard was in, at the time so we bring them back and I said the same thing to her I go is that you know do you know what they are she's like Rose you don't understand some of these kids have never had anything homemade and wow she was right the effect it had on some of them they were like this is the best cookie I've ever had and then we take five and you know I mean I felt good about stuff like that because you're opening the world to something else these, these kids don't have a lot and, and I'll just kind of a couple observations, and I think takeaways uh, in, in, I, in my own life. Um, one is just kind of you putting yourself out there and using your gifts, your natural gifts and abilities, and probably figuring out what those are, whether it was through taking the, the schooling and all that kind of stuff, but then kind of up, applying yourself, kind of your DNA of Rose Diaz. Um, but you got to take that step to do it. Um, it, whether it was a school board or in this situation. And then the other thing that I would say in, in, and at the time, a lot of times we don't see it in, I, I play a story at, at the uh, boys and girls club that I volunteered at, but you do make a difference. Even when you don't feel like you're making a difference, you do make a difference. People do remember. Yeah, there's there may be some that it's going to be more obvious where you've just struck a chord where they're at in their personal journey, where they're like, oh, my God, somebody actually cares about me because they've right. never been cared about. Something that small can change the trajectory of an individual's life and you don't know it and you don't know it. So, um, you know, I think a takeaway from my perspective just thus far uh, is, um, you know, if you're sitting on the fence and you got that little voice in your head saying, well, I want to do this, but I just, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be good at it or, you know, I come up with a million excuses, just do it. And I'll tell you, you will get way more out of it than what you're putting into it at the end of the day. So as you're part of your personal journey, journey, and again, you don't know it when it's happening necessarily, you're going to feel um, like you're doing your part in humanity and you know, society. Um, so I just wanted to kind of point that out. You know, I, I had, um, I've done quite a bit of volunteer stuff 
over the years. And the last thing that I had uh, done as far as in a system, if you will, was at a boys and girls club in, in a small town of Wisconsin. And um, I'll tell you what, there were days in there that I just felt like, okay, am I, am I really contributing? Am I really making a difference? Uh, but then I'd be out in the local Walmart or whatever walking and I remember one, one particular day, I'm walking all of a sudden a kid jumps up on my back and hey, and turn around I'm like what the heck and their parents there, you don't always meet the parents and I'm like, I'm an older guy and volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club again and like, they're probably thinking what this guy has no life what the heck is you know he doing there, but then, and then I've had other situations where there was a, a young man who uh, he had some behavioral issues and I would sit and read with him. He had his assignment to, to read. He was struggling with reading, came from kind of a tough situation, wetting his pants, you know, and he's at the early teens. So those are all kinds of signs of other things going on. And then seeing the connection, um, several years later, you know, I own a, I owned a restaurant and a gal that I met uh, came in, she happened to be an attorney and she had this young man with her and another girl. I'm like, oh my God. And this was several years after, you know, doing it. Uh, and uh, I remember I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember you. You remember me? He's like, oh yeah. And then I got to know uh, the gal that was there and she was fostering this guy. It, it was taken out of his family situation. And then I told her kind of how I, you know, and then just talking to him and just the advancement, but her, she's an attorney, doesn't have any kids, taking the steps to get involved and work with him. And anyway, all that to say is all those little things make a huge difference uh, in people's lives that you don't think could. So if you get an opportunity, and it doesn't have to be big, just small things, you know, sometimes people just need to be heard. You know, just need somebody to listen to them, to hug them, whatever. I think those are, you know, just great opportunities. So, so you you did that over at, at the prison. It sounds like your training as a life coach um, probably helped out quite a bit. Um, so, talk about what is a life coach. Um, share some of the experiences and and how you uh, use that today uh, professionally. Sure. So, you know, I was trained by a company that uh, was run by positive psychologists. Everybody had their master's or PhD, but me, I had my bachelor's degree, but they didn't want to have to start off and teach you how to active listen if you've already done it. And I did do a program uh, as an applied psych where we, uh, I worked at a, uh, I interned at a, their, their crisis hotline for over a year. So I did work and, and you're, you know, I did work with people that were suicidal and schizophrenic and violence and, you know, all different sorts. And uh, so, you know, I still had that in my background. Anyway, so um, as a coach, and a lot of these therapists and psychiatrists were taking coaching classes because, you know, as a therapist, you sit in people's past talking about how mommy and daddy, you know, didn't treat you right or some kind of a relationship. Or, and this is why I think I decided to not to be a therapist after all, is I wanted to get people to action. So coaching is, you, you mm -hmm. might spend five minutes talking about why you do something, but now what are you going to do about it? And so a lot of therapists wanted to, you know, help, you know, their patients get into that. So that's something I loved about it. So as a coach, if you were my client, I would tell you you're whole and perfect as you are. And I'd ask you what, what brings you joy? What do you want to change in your life? And I've never 
you never judge. I never give you advice. I never tell you you're wrong. We just make uh, goals. And I'm sort of like um, a container for your change so that uh, you come in and you say, okay, next week. So whether it's someone, uh, I've always had clients on the side while working full time that either wanted to like, uh, you know, career change or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, increase their business or um, lose weight. Usually that's what I got. Um, and then we would sit down and talk about it. And when you, if you didn't reach your goals last week, we don't, there's no shaming. Hey, let's look at why do you think that is? You know what? And we use like the tools to figure out, well, then that doesn't sound like a good plan for you. And a lot of time it's reading energy. Um, and I could tell right away when someone make a plan and I could tell, I said, well, that doesn't sound like a good plan. You're not even interested in making it. So a coach really just is very observant, very aware of what's happening with the client and gets the client to um, kind of supports it and, and motivates. A mm. client. Really. Okay. Okay. And, and um, one of the things that uh, I, I had a coach myself, an executive coach, um, and um, she and my boss had gotten gotten that for me because, uh, you know, I was kind of wishy-washy on what I wanted to do next. And I was still in that age category to where I should keep progressing, you know, in your job and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And, um, it, you know, it was, it was really effective because, um, I, you know, I didn't necessarily have the discipline or the you know, of thinking through these things, writing them down. And it sounds crazy, you know, but, um, and then taking the necessary steps. And it was great because there was a certain level, I agree, there was no judgment. There was accountability. There was accountability because you're going to be meeting with that coach. Right. And uh, it's like anything, you know, once you take the initiative and you and sometimes it takes a little while to get that feedback mechanism but once you do whether it's losing weight or whatever then you get motivated and you see you know it's almost like a mentor it's almost like a mentor like um i remember in uh i had to be uh probably in my late 20s early 30s and um the time at the at the bank i was going down the technology uh path and uh, I had flew pretty good through the ranks at, at a fairly young age. So I, I think I was in my twenties, but I hit this, I hit this wall and uh, I wanted to be an AVP, uh, assistant vice uh, president. And, and I remember, um, I remember just like, God, what do I need to do? At that point, I was writing down my goals. I was doing all the right things and quote unquote. And then I remember talking to my boss at the time. Uh, he was an interesting character. In fact, I was talking to somebody else about him the other day and how the world's changed. But, um, and, you know, he said, and it's just so interesting. I'm like, his first name was Jan. I'm like, Jan, you know, what do I need to do, man? You know, our projects are getting delivered, all this kind of good stuff. He's like, do you get along with this person? I'm like, huh? What? I'm like, yeah, I think it really, okay. Do you get along with that person? I'm like, well, yeah. He's like, go talk to them. So I literally went and talked to this individual and I said, hey, you know, I explained the context. I said, is there something I've done where I feel, you know, I've wronged you or we're not able to negotiate, you know, because my job, you had to negotiate certain things. He says, oh no, it's really good. 
So I was frustrated. Um, and so I ended up talking to uh, somebody much more senior than I. He was over our software development. His first name was Ken. And he was just this really positive energy, positive guy. And he knew me. And I was on the infrastructure side of the business. And he was on the software side. And he always wanted me to jump the bridge, the dark side back then. But anyway, so long and short, I talked to him about it. He says, well, do you have a mentor? And I got to be honest with you. I didn't even know what the heck that was. I didn't know what it was. I mean, my background, you know, my parents didn't even talk about college, you know. So I'm like, oh, and he explained what it was. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. And he's like, is there somebody that you really respect in the organization um, that you feel like you can build trust with, you know? And again, the life coach is very similar. And um, I'm like, yeah. So I sought out this person. Her name was Jody Burns. Um, and hopefully I'll get her on the show. And I remember going into Jody's office and I said, hey, you know, here's where I'm at. Here's my goals. I feel like I've run into this roadblock. I don't know what to do differently. I've talked to my manager isn't always the best person to talk to, right? They're not always the best people. Uh, you know, she's like, well, could I observe you over the next, you know, 30 days and then we'll reconnect. And, um, and, and I'm like, oh yeah, great. So she started coming to meetings, you know, listening in, wouldn't participate. Um, and after 30 days, we got together, you know, and, and had lunch. And I said, what do you think? She says, you don't come off sincere. I'm like, holy crap, that was a huge dagger. Now, I trusted Jody. I knew it wasn't a personal attack at what she was being. And we had talked up front, kind of what's this going to look like, you know? And I'm like, what? I'm like, I am so sincere, you know? She's like, but you don't come across that way. Because when you walk into a room, you know, you're operating at this level. You want to go to this next level you're still operating at this level. So when you go in and talk to people like, oh, that, I like your tie. Oh, did you get a haircut? Did you? That was just my way of breaking the ice in a discussion and you know, making people comfortable. Well, they're not thinking I'm serious you know, at what I'm doing. I'm just kind of bullshitting, if you will. And she's like, you got to change that. She's like, all the things that the skills you had from, from here to here have gotten you there. Now you need a new set of skills and your style and how you come across is equally as important as your technical knowledge because you're dealing with people. And if you want to get to this next level, you're dealing with people who are at that level that are much older than you. They're going to be more mature and you need to adjust your style. It was so hard to hear because I'm touchy feeling and you know my feelings were kind of hurt, but I thought, you know, nothing else has worked. And I became introspective and I paid attention. It was very hard, but I paid attention to how I introduced myself, how I, you know, cause I was joking around lighthearted and, and that really works in certain scenarios, you know, but what I was going for and who I was dealing with, I had to adjust. And if I didn't have somebody to work with me to kind of point that out and somebody that I could trust, I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't know. So when I think of life coaching and the executive coach that I had, that person is kind of the second set of eyes. It's not a judgy thing. It's a, here's information. Here's what you, what do you think you need to do about it? What do you, you know, and then that kind of accountability. Um, what, what types of clients have you worked with? So I wanted to just commend you because 
the one thing is you can't coach anybody who's not open to coaching, right? Because people are like, well, you sell it, you sell it. And I'm like, no, I've never done that. Usually um, someone refers someone to me or I speak, you know, I, 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 I do a workshop and then someone comes up to me or, you know, it, it's always been, they want to do it and, and they have to want to do it. Uh, right. You have to be open to it. You have to have some self-awareness or want some self-awareness. I don't see that a lot with people anymore. Um, but any, so um, people have mostly come to me about career, about expanding a business, about uh, losing weight. And it's always been interesting to me because um, I would say 95% of them broke down and started to cry about their relationships, whether mm. with family or parents, uh, with their spouse, with their husband. <laughs> He's an alcoholic. He's abusive. Mm. Like, um, and, I, you know, strange, like it, to me, it was always like, I feel like I'm doing relationship coaching, but no one comes to you for relationship coaching and they don't realize how important our, uh, our environment is, how important are the people around us who we're dating, who are, you know, who we're associating with um, and how much it affects us. So, I mean, connection is a huge thing, right? Mm, um, so sure. even though, you know, so I always wanted to get into relationship coaching. That's why I think it'd be good in the schools to talk about effective communication, how you have relationships, because we don't live in a bubble. <laughs> right, 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 right. It, you know, and I want to come back to, because I, you know, it's interesting when people want to get physically in shape and they've gotten to the point where like, now I know I need to make a change. You know, they'll go to the gym and, and now it's very prevalent. People will hire a personal trainer because they have the skills and the personal trainers that help you those tools to make that change that you want, whatever that goal might be. So people will spend, it's a huge amount of money. People will spend on that, but they won't take the time <laughs> to pick up the mirror, you know, and say, well, what can I be doing differently? And, and probably a lot of people don't even know that there's folks out there like a life coach that could partner with them. And I want to come back to uh, towards the end of the conversation, how people might be able to get a hold of you and sure. just have a conversation, see if that's something, you know, they're at a point in their life where they want to make a, a, a material change and how you could help them kind of go through that, go through that process. Uh, one of the things I think um, that you're doing too, um, that I thought we could talk about is this whole idea of restorative practices. And let me kind of tee this up. So I think any one of us, regardless of our politics, could look around us, and especially over the last couple of years, given the pandemic. And not only have we had a pandemic, we've had, a, you know, uh, just an inordinate amount of divisiveness um, and, you know, whether it's from the media, whether it's from our politicians, whether it's from, you know, social media in particular, where it's very easy to hide behind, you know, a, a computer and say nasty things. There's just like this nastiness thing going on. And then in particular with the pandemic, um, you know, we've had kind of this siloing of people. And if you look around the country, certain parts of the country, it's been incredibly extreme where they don't want you to leave your house. Uh, you know, the masking of children, forget the science around, you know, whether or not the debate masks work. We do know N95s do for sure. Um, but the others debate on the other thing. But regardless of that, you have kids with masks on their faces. 
early as two years old in certain parts of the country. You've got them working from home, uh, doing schooling from home. And it's we just know that it's not as effective as being in the classroom for lots of reasons, developmental reasons, just the, how we learn and that kind of thing. Um, we've got, you know, right now suicide in teens is at an all time high and adults. So we've got, I think, you know, we, I think people could relate to the opioid crisis because you put something in your body, you get addicted, you, you know, then whatever. And there's certain outcomes. Mental health is a whole other level of issues out there. And I think as a society, we'll see over the next four or five years or decade, the repercussions of some of the policies, and, and I don't mean to beat up on the government, when you don't know what you're dealing with, you do things, right? I think we have data now. I think we know what's going on and the one size fits all, you know, I don't think it's good for kids. We know it's not good for kids. It's like gaming all day long or being on social media, look at teenage girls, the suicide rate and the sexualization of kids. I mean, there's, there's all this stuff uh, going on. Um, and, you know, so you could look at and blame, say, the government or policies purely at that. But I think there's something deeper going on. I think, and, and I'll use my own life as an example, as a human being, we have the, you know, the physical, mental, and, and spiritual aspects of life. And I know personally for me, uh, in, in, if I don't have good balance in all of those things, right? And it's easy to get off kilter, okay? If you don't have that in place when times are tough to help you deal with the things that you need to deal with, um, you know, you could have some serious effects. So for me spiritually, you know, my relationship with God, I happen to be a Christian. So if I'm not spending my time having that relationship, whether it's praying or I love the Bible and, you know, getting into the, the details of all that stuff and, and which you know, you don't have to be a Christian to do nice moral things for people, but it does inspire me. I want to live and I feel like everybody else and I'm inconsistent. So I don't want to put myself on a panel, but it does inspire me to want to help people in any way that when I pray, God, give me an opportunity to do that. Anyway, so when I'm not doing that, I go off the rails. When I'm not for me physically, I need to exercise. I have a lot of energy. I'm, you know, uh, taking care of your body is just important. And it's different for different people with exercise. But for me, you know, I've got to do that. Um, and then, uh, then there's this other aspect, which I think um, because of social media and silos, having relationships with people, um, reaching out to people like even like our friendship, we have a really good friendship. I've got friends from, you know, when I was growing up, maintaining those relationships, even when you might not agree on certain things. So anyway, I, I think mentally staying healthy, physically and spiritually, they all go together. And one of the things that I really appreciate about the restorative practices you know, all of that is behind kind of relationships, how you deal with stuff and my understanding. So talk to me. I mean, what's your observations around? I don't know if I sound crazy on mental health in general, relationships and what restorative practices are, how you're applying it and how people can apply it in companies or their individual lives. So restorative practices is an evidence based um, 
started with uh, Maori and New Zealand, and they started looking at how to work with, um, you know, victims and a perpetrator and how to not shame them because there's a lot of shame and judgment, as we know. We we both talked about Brene Brown. Yeah. Really, you know, she gets the the expert on this. That um, <clears throat> so, how do you restore um, relationships? And so that's how it got started with with violence and you know restoring among like you know uh, you know when when things are disrupted. Um, but you can use them. And I started so I got trained a couple of years back with it, and then I became a facilitator and trained on that uh, last year. And I started using the circles. Um, and the circles you can like Native Americans have used them, and and basically is you sit around in a circle and you share. And it and and really restorative practices is, is a way to connect with community and with each other. And and I've told you this before. Back um, 2018, before the pandemic, the UK government declared an epidemic of loneliness. So mm. we have been moving towards this, whether it's been because of the internet and and uh, the way that <laughs> greed has, you know, and corporations have sold you so many things, and that we can sit and watch Netflix and be alone, and we never have to leave right. our house. We've been we've been heading this way for a long time. The divisiveness with politics doesn't help. And what happens is that, you know, depression was prevalent um, even years ago, right? You can have lots of things and still be lonely. You're right. So the more you disconnect from people, and the less you're vulnerable and willing to be open and have deep connections. And, and the, the group, the positive psychologists that I, um, it, actually the, the company's mentor coach, that's what it's called. So it is about mentorship, but um, it's all about, they, the positive psychologists teach you about happiness. And to have happiness, um, it, they've, they've done so many studies that it has, you know, I get it. If you're, if you're in India and you're pro, you know, really poor and you can't even get food, that's not the same. But I, what right. I'm saying is whether you're lower middle class, middle class, or you're wealthy, it doesn't matter. It, the, happiness has more to do with engagement, it has more to do with um, purpose, which is right. into like whether you're a Christian or, or you, there's a higher purpose, whether it's you know your family or uh, doing what you do. Um, those are the things. And pleasure is one of them as well. But we've gone on the deep end with pleasure. Right. Mm. So everything's about pleasure in this country. You can get quick fixes. So getting back to um, restorative practices, one of the things they talk about is the compass of shame. And I've been hearing about this with psychology for years. And the psychologists said that um, the compass of shame is that the way we handle shame and all a shame is by their definition is a disruption of joy. So like Dan, you and I are talking and you're like, hey, Rose, everything's great. We're laughing. And then I say something like, oh, did you get your hair cut? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. And I go, oh, now your disruptive joy. <laughs> What's wrong with my hair, Rose? <laughs> I'm teasing. I made that I'm up. Teasing. I made that up. I I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Said, oh, are those new pictures behind you? You know, I actually had a sister, ex-sister-in-law who said that. Yeah. Oh, your hair's really dark. You know, I like hear that. And then nothing else. <laughs> like, what? So you're all of a sudden your disruption of joy creates shame. And so we, we as humans, we go to four different things. We either withdraw, like, oh gosh, I'm not going to talk to Dan again. I'm going to go in my room and just hide out. Um, 
we can um, lash out. Well, you know what? Your hair looks stupid. I wouldn't talk, you know, you can lash out at somebody or you can internalize it. Why did I get my hair cut? I never do the right thing, but you know, and, and self-inflict or we can avoid avoidance, which is about numbing. Well, I'm just going to get drunk tonight. I never have to right. think about yeah, the drugs. So these are the, that's the compass of shame. And so we tend to go in these quadrants and all of us have gone into every one of the quadrants sure. in some way or another, but it's, so it's not really a coping mechanism, right? So what I've learned over the years, I've learned uh, nonviolent communication, how to handle things like that, um, uh, coaching curiosity. So, you know, Rose, you would say, I'm just curious why you said that to me and the way you said it. And then you would talk about, oh, because when you say that, I felt disrespected and kind of felt hurt. Can you do me a favor and next time, you know, maybe not say it like, you know, and then you negotiate it or, and then I come back and, and say, well, that wasn't my intention. Oh, it's just the, the whole, I love, love the haircut before, you know, whatever. So that you still connect to yourself and others and you don't go off to the shame. So that's all part of like understanding, you know, relationships and coaching. You get really, and then, you know, you get curious. You don't get judgmental back with me, Dan. You get curious as to why I said something because a lot of times our intentions don't come across. Look at what you just said when, before you had that coach, your intention was asking people about the weekend that you're just being yourself and a nice right. guy. But part of it is what I always say when you're communicating, when I talk to people about communication is you're not just responsible for your intention. You're, you're, you're not, I'm not responsible for your response to me, but I'm responsible for how you're hearing me. I, I, I want to acknowledge it and go, right. so what did you hear? And then when I find out, oh my gosh, that's not what my intent, because so much of the breakdown of communication is that, right? It, it is. And I'll tell you, I, I totally relate to this because, um, you know, I was married for 11 years and uh, prior to being married, you know, at that point in my life, I think I was 32 when I got married. I had business at one point, it was my own business, then got into the banking and I was in a rock band and all my focus was very self-absorbed. And so my, I dated, never had a relationship though. It was just dating, you know, so nothing never went deep. It was all convenience. It was all that kind of thing. So when I met my wife, uh, she had to work for the bank, um, you know, we clicked and I was kind of that in that spot where I was ready. I was ready to get married. And I got into a marriage where I didn't have any, any skills, really any communication skills. You know, I am always been kind of a half glass full kind of guy. You know, I don't like confrontation. Um, and before we had kids, it was all fun, 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 just traveling and, you know, mountain biking, whatever we were doing, I have fun. And then when we uh, started life to really kick in once you have kids and the career and all that stuff. There was a lot of conflict in, but so ended up divorced. And again, it takes two people. Um, but I went through a process after that divorce that I think is very relevant here. Uh, people should think about whether it's divorce or whatever it is, is where it struck me. Um, I'm like, I can't believe I'm getting divorced. At that point, we had, I have two daughters, uh, you know, both of them. Um, and I would never leave my daughters. I love my daughters. And I, when it was tough the last several years, I'm like, God, I, I nothing, I leave my daughters, but it just got to the point. Physically, I just could not take it anymore. I was a completely different person. So I had to get out of the situation. So there's this natural thing that happens afterwards where, you know, your buddies and whatever, they call you. And I remember, I won't mention this, uh, who this was, 
Um, but he had called me and I was kind of hiding between Illinois and Wisconsin, just kind of, you know, figuring things out. And he called me and he's like, hey, at that point I was, I had to be in my forties. Yeah, cause I was married 11 years. He called me, he's like, hey man, I got these two girls. And he was in the fitness industry. You know, they could come up for the weekend. We'll have a great time, we'll party, da, 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 da. And he's like, yeah, they're in their twenties. And I'm thinking, I know this person has good intentions. Okay. But this is crazy, first off, because I just came out of a divorce. I know they're just trying to, but I was like, how did it happen? So I started this self-reflection, like, what the heck did I do? Because at first you blame everybody else. That's just a natural thing that you do. You blame other people. And I went from that blame and I had the shame, for sure. I had that shame of being divorced. I remember telling, calling, having to call my mom that I was going to get divorced. And I had so much shame. And, and she, and it was interesting how she responded. And again, this is not a judgment on my ex-wife because she doesn't, my mom doesn't even know all the dynamics of the relationship, but she basically gave me the blessing and she said, honey, I don't want you to die young. <laughs> so she could see what was going on. So that kind of helped me. But anyway, I went through this period of self-reflection and uh, that whole year, the whole year. And uh, I didn't, I, I socially kind of went outdated, but I didn't get into a relationship because I was broken and we're all broken in some way, shape or form. And I'm like, who am I? Who am I as a, a father, as a man, as an employee? Who am I? You know, and um, went through this whole process of figuring that out. And then ultimately, you know, what am I capable of giving to? Because, you know, I loved being married, actually. There's a lot of great aspects of, of the relationship and loyalty and all that stuff. Um, what am I willing, what am I capable of giving to another human being? And it wasn't just necessarily in a relationship, but to other people, because we put on masks, you know, and this is where I came across, you know, Brene Brown and her whole thing on shame and vulnerability, you know, can I be vulnerable? Do, do, you know, so that's a whole other deep well that I, I don't think you know, most people uh, go through because it's scary or want to go through because it's scary because you have to pick up the mirror and, and go through that process. And you might not like what you see. And I didn't like everything that I saw, but I did know that I am a good human. God loves me and I am capable of, you know, having a relationship, but what kind of relationship? Because we're all different. Anyway, so I went through all that whole process um, and uh, it really benefited benefited me too. And Angie, at the time I was, uh, my first real relationship after that, I, we did a book together. I want to say it was finding the love that you deserve. I think that's the title. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it basically what you're talking about, these restorative practices, it basically went into that, how to have communication, how not to be defensive. So that was one of the things, cause I didn't like confrontation. I wouldn't listen. I'd be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, okay but I wasn't listening. So that person, even in that relationship, there were times, and she was a great human being, she turned me on to this too. You know, sometimes people need, you don't have to agree. Your intent wasn't to hurt somebody. You know, a lot of conflict in relationships, exactly what you said, people make assumptions and, you know, the intentions, all that. But the majority of the time, if you're in a relationship, it's because you want to be in a relationship. 
people aren't there trying to hurt you, you know. So as you're talking about this, it really rings true because I, I've gone through that process and I continually, it's an ongoing process. And I'll be honest with you, early on, you know, uh, I thought, oh, this mumbo jumbo crap, you know, but it's, it's real. And if you want to become a better human being and really getting the skills, you got to put the time into it. You just have to do it. Um, so in the context of these, these practices, do you primarily work in like corporate environments? Are you doing one-on-one, the dating scene? How's that? So How I've are done you using all of them? I've worked for a couple of companies. Um, uh, the last one, uh, they had training dollars and I did a workshop and a lot of my, you know, so it's funny because I've transitioned into wellness coaching. And when I say that it's because it encompasses everything. I, I remember years ago, I contacted someone who had written a book about relationship coaching and I emailed her and I said, I really want to get into it, but I feel like I advertise for that and people don't come, you know, to talk about that stuff, but yet they always end up talking about that. And she's like, oh, are you getting clients? <laughs> she wanted to know how I was getting clients. So I realized, you know, we don't want to acknowledge that that's a, a big thing in our lives. And so I really was affected by this wellness uh, professor. And I realized, especially nowadays, that it encompasses all of it. It encompasses happiness. And I got into uh, mindfulness years ago, too, and meditation. Mm. And I started to, you know, mind, body, and soul. I've always, you know, like you, worked out, ran, swam, you know, tennis. I, you know, I'm a very active. I've got a lot of energy. So I have to do that. I'm not. If I go a couple of days, right. I don't feel right. Um, and that's also about habit forming, uh, which I realize as well. But anyway, so for me, uh, I've had different clients and it doesn't really matter. I always come back and say, you know, let's look at all the aspects of your life. What do you want to increase your happiness and your joy? You know, what are you dissatisfied with? And you can call it anything you want, but it, you cannot avoid, even if you're trying to expand your business, unless you're, uh, you know, even if you're living alone, so even when I worked with corporations, when people would talk to me about um, what stopped them from getting into that career they wanted, it always had to do with their habits. Um, they always brought up that they're you know not eating right. It's all mm -hmm. all connected. So now I just call it wellness coaching. Um, but seriously, it's it's a lot about relationships and it's really connecting with yourself and others. And to be that happiness, you have to have that balance of everything in your life because it affects everything else. It affects everything else. If you're a workaholic, I'm sorry, it's affecting your relationships. And then somebody nagging you is going to put stress on you every time. Right. You, have to work. you know, it's, it's, it's all encompassing. Right. So. Well, I'll tell you what, Rose, this has been a really, really good conversation. And there's like a lot of takeaways and thank you for your patience. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, uh, just going back to coming from Cuba, Spain, the United States, taking risks, you know, taking the initiative and looking at your journey, there's that consistency. So that's something I've seen in my life. I mean, you only progress if you progress and action is a verb. It's not something you come up with in your head but it only becomes an, uh, a verb when you actually do what you want to do. So, I mean, whatever it is that people you want to do, don't talk yourself out of it, right. do it, do it. And I happen to have a bias in Rose kind of in how you live your life in finding ways to help people. And yeah, you can make money at it for sure. 
But I think as human beings, especially where we are today, it's those little bitty things we could do every single day. And if you're passionate about getting on a school board, whatever, you think something's broken, shut your trap, go get on a school board and do something about it. Or in a, your small town, uh, you know, I get into that. You want to see your small town get better, get involved in your small town, your economic development, whatever. But the core of all that is you as a human being and have you put the time in as a human being um, to uh, figure out who you are and then to go pursue those things. And there's lots of tools out there. Again, you go to the gym, you hire a trainer. You know, if you're trying dealing with childhood trauma, whatever, or, you know, you, or you're having issues with your spouse, you go to a counselor. There's all these people out there. Um, the wellness coaching and the life coaching um, is a great tool. And uh, if you just need somebody, some, sometimes we just need somebody to help us push along. I did in my career, several times throughout my career, I've had mentors. It doesn't matter what level you are, we're all human beings. So I would encourage you to kind of munch on what we've talked about. And Rose, if people wanted to learn more about life coaching, wellness, and how you might be able to help them on an individual level, uh, level, excuse me, or even in these restorative practices, you know, I mean, we've got people working from home, we've got people, you know, now they might be coming back to the office, the culture's kind of, you know, where do we go from here, everybody's stressed out, you know, this has been a crazy ass couple of years, right? How could they get a hold of you to find out more uh, on how you could uh, help them or, or their organization? Sure. And whether it's losing weight or relationship sure. coaching, just more health or um, you know, doing something, it's really about changing. Um, uh, I've got a website, it's kind of old, but uh, Rose Diaz, uh, R-O-S-E-D-I-A-Z.com. Um, my uh, email is empowered, so empowered, like E-D, uh, at rosediaz.com, or they can just call or text me, 630-362-6712, and I'm, you know, Definitely, I do individual coaching. I do group coaching. Uh, when I see, I have a group that uh, has some kind of similarities. Um, and I think for, especially for losing weight and health, um, something like that, then it yeah. keeps you accountable. Yeah, it's right. Expensive. And then I do circles. So I did it for the detention center. Um, there's a lot of stress to uh, uh, healthcare workers now. Uh, I'm doing it for um, some patients through a company uh, tomorrow night. And where we sit and we just, especially if you have a company, that you're sitting there and everyone is stressed and we don't work well when we're stressed. <laughs> we right. don't work well, we can't talk about it. And sometimes there's jobs like that where you can't take it home. So the best way to connect, you know, and I've done a ton of workshops at my nonprofit where I work now with people that can't get along or, or having a problem at work. When you sit down and you ask these powerful questions and people can see the humanity in each other and be curious and listen because it's for, you're forced to do it in these circles when, when I facilitate it. It, it helps you connect. Yeah. Um, and, and that oh, increases important. happiness. And we talk about gratitude too, because that's the fastest way to increase happiness to, hey, if you're alive during this pandemic, that, that's something to be joyful about. Thank you. Uh, I totally agree. And uh, reach out to Rose. And um, if you're just exploring these ideas, um, and uh, so I'd encourage you to do that. Hey, Rose, thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again. You have a great okay, day. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Dan. Okay. Okay.